Welcome to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I am joined by my very special guest. She is a published author. Her name is Katherine Bacher. She is the author of a trilogy of, I guess you'd call them cozy mysteries. The first one was called Capture Me. The second was called Crush on You. And the third is called Missing You, all featuring a character who goes by the name of Roxy Summers. Catherine, welcome to the program. Hi, it's really nice to be here. I'm very excited and nervous to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to we'll try to keep the nerves to a minimum. Uh, again, as I always uh, tell people when I have uh, folks on who were under uh, our label, uh, Catherine was published by Trifecta Publishing House, and we were we were getting published at the same time, which uh, is how we got to know each other. Yeah, it's um, we were definitely one of the early birds for their company. Um, and it was really interesting to watch the company grow or the publishing company grow over time and how many authors ended up becoming kind of all of us becoming kind of a mini family. You know, that's a good way to put it. And we, we had our own little private uh, Facebook group there for a while. Unfortunately, Philip Bauer, who was published around the same time as we were, uh, passed away. Uh, and, uh, so that that was a, a sad moment, but uh, you know, for me personally, I have uh, a lot of gratitude to uh, to Lori, Doug, and Diana uh, for for publishing me at the time. Um, you know, we you and I got in in with them very very different ways. Um, but um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was I wanted to talk to you about the books you wrote, why you wrote them, kind of what your inspirations were. Um, you know, because you created this this character in Roxy Summers that that carries throughout. So, kind of, where'd you get the idea to uh, to write cozy mysteries featuring this uh, kick-ass female character? <laughs> um, well, she. Thank you for saying that. I I find her very kick-ass as well, although uh, quite clumsy uh, and often doesn't always make the right choices. But um, to answer what inspired me i think it was just recalling my girlfriends and i at that age i am definitely not that age anymore <laughs> and just how difficult it is to navigate that that really young adult age you're not a teenager teenager anymore you've had life experiences maybe things have happened to you um for me at that particular age i had recently lost my father i had gone through a lot of changes um but that there's that small window just post college before you really settled into your job or your career or your life and you're still figuring stuff out and I really wanted to expand on that idea while involving dead bodies. And as far as the, Oh, I'm sorry. No, it, it's, it's interesting. You said that because I had Mikey Sola on a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about creature thrillers and he said, you know, as as much people munching as possible in those stories. <laughs> so, you know, the whole, it, it's funny because Stephen King once said, you know, you, you do all this, so you have to kill your darlings. Right. But it does seem like I don't know what it is about us us authors. We're always popping our our characters off. We, they, you know, so yeah. There's always dead bodies involved in these stories. Absolutely, and uh, it. I as much as I, I in real life, I would never want anyone to pass away. But oh, God, you know, no. for the sake of for the sake of fiction, 
I, I think it's really interesting how different people respond to shock and grief, but I, in a weird way, I wanted to do it in a funny way. And the reason cozy mysteries and the reason cozy mysteries really uh, draw me in is I like the adrenaline rush of solving a puzzle. Just for me personally, I really like solving puzzles. I like complex clues. I did write them to be a little less intense than like a Hercule Poirot. You know, those are usually very nuanced and very detailed. Um, I wanted it a little bit lighter. I have, I tend to have a pretty sarcastic and dry and self-deprecating sense of humor. And I just, at the end of the day, I want everything wrapped up in a nice little bow and have some kind of happy ending for the reader. Um, and those are just the stories that speak to me. You know, I'm I'm a total fluffball marshmallow on the inside and <laughs> disguised as a cynic. You know, I'm an optimist disguised as a cynic at the end of the day. And I really wanted to find a way to make death funny. It's it's really true what they say. Death is easy. Comedy is hard. Yeah, and and the other thing about it too, and, and you touched on it, is we all we all handle it differently. We all you know grieve differently, right? And we've all been touched by it in our, our personal lives in real life. Um, you know, I read a lot of horror. I read a lot of uh, you know scary stuff, and you know they, you kind of go into it knowing that you know that's going to happen. Uh, I've actually said at the in the middle of a horror film, uh, not enough people have died yet. Um, but again, real right. life, real life. You you know that it's it's horrific and and I think I think reading fiction and watching movies that's part of how we deal with it. Um, yeah. What I wanted to ask you about is the cozy mystery subgenre, right? So I think I think one of the things that we get wrapped up in a little too much is genre. Right. We get trapped in this in these silos. I, I sat next to an author at a book signing at a Barnes and Noble in California. And that was how she described her books right off the bat. They're cozy mysteries. And I kept trying to wrap my head around what a cozy mystery is. So perhaps you can explain it to me. That's a really good question. And if I had to look at it, if I was. I'm in the process of editing my books and republishing them and getting them back on the shelves because at this time they're not, if I could do it over again, I do not think I would classify it as a cozy mystery. Anymore. My books are for adult level reading. They're not erotica, but you know, it's for readers who are no longer in high school. That's kind of my intended audience. I believe they call it the 18 to 65 crowd. <laughs> It's a, it's and, a pretty wide swath. Right. And I had a really strong difficulty of trying to narrow down what genre my book would be in because sure there's murder, but they're really lighthearted. They're meant to make you side split laugh. They're meant to make you go, oh no, what's going to happen next? But in, but having you laugh at the same time while it's happening. And if I had to do it over again, I don't know if I'd put it in the genre of cozy mystery. I found out much too late after the first book had already been on the shelves that the 
specific definition of cozy mystery is that there is no swearing, there is no visibly written sexual intercourse. There, it's it's very important to keep it nice and what they say the word clean. And my book has swearing in it. Oh, sorry. My, my, sorry, I fell asleep thinking of what a cozy mystery was supposed to be. Right? Yeah, and and my books have swearing. My my books have more what they call cutaway scenes. You know, there is some romance involved with her and certain characters, but it's more like if you're watching a movie then they pan to the window and and, and you know what's going to happen. Um you know, and it I wouldn't necessarily call it a cozy mystery and and the thing is is just because of that specific definition, I, I'm even struggling now trying to figure out what genre it would fall under. I struggled for probably a month trying to figure out what genre I was going to narrow it down to so that, according to the publisher, it would be marketable. Because they're meant to be humorous, they're meant to be murder, but they're meant to be romance novels as well. Um, it kind of falls under the romance umbrella genre then it dives into more, oh, there's also murder happening here. <laughs> but the funny thing, Catherine, yeah. is that it's real life, though, right? I mean, you, even in even in horror stories, there's there's comic relief. There's there's something funny that happens. And I and, you know, um, that's just real life. I, you know, you, yeah. there's there's all kinds of moments in life, even in the most macabre situations that uh, something funny will happen or something will strike somebody as, as funny. I watched uh, or I listened to a podcast uh, hosted by uh, Rebecca McKendry, who uh, used to work for Fangoria and uh, she's actually, you know, teaches horror in a college setting. And uh, she went round and round and round one night on her podcast about how you define horror. And, and it, it becomes this nebulous thing because it becomes something that means, something different to different people, right? It doesn't necessarily have to scare you or shock you or be gory or those things. And I think, I think if you just labeled your books after hearing you talk about them as mysteries, I think, I think you'd be doing yourself a pretty good service because like you said, that strict definition of cozy mystery, you've siloed yourself into, uh, in, you know, in, in a box that you don't want to be in. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. I wish I had read, I had chosen a different genre, but I was highly encouraged to go the cozy mystery route because at the time that particular publishing company didn't have a lot of that type of book under their belt yet. And they appreciated that I was writing towards what they called it's it's loosely used now. I think it's getting more popular, the term new adult genre. And I kind of leaned into it because I was a nobody out of Washington State who wanted to get published, you know. And it it's funny. It, it ties into the marketing thing. You know, it's it's hard to write a book all on its own. And then when you have to explain it to somebody, but those darn synopses, you know, right. the synopsis or the taglines or how do you describe your book in five words? That's almost, I feel like emotionally that is almost as difficult to 
as it did to publish your 30, 60, $90,000 or 30, 60, 90,000 word book. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you make a really good point. Um, because that kind of segues and dovetails into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by published author Catherine Bacher, the author of uh, the Roxy Summers Mysteries. Uh, the thing about it is when you get into this, right, it's one, like you said, it was very difficult to write a book. It took 13 months to write my first one. Uh, they always say that you get your whole life to write your first one and then about a year to write your second one. Because hopefully you're you're under contract at that point, right? So now you got deadlines and everything else. Uh, so you know when we when we got into this, um, you know, you don't understand what goes into the marketing part of it. Now I had the benefit of a digital media background, social media background, but I had no idea how to sell books. I still don't know how to sell books, and. What's interesting about that is, you know, you talk about being in that cozy mystery genre or category. Some of that plays into keywords, especially on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with mine, with my stories, you know, I've written uh, three vampire novels. You start getting all kinds of weirdness, urban fantasy, vampire this, uh, horror that. It really gets interesting. You really get really into the weeds on the keywords on on Amazon just to try to get your stuff to to surface based on on whatever searches but walking into it I had no earthly idea and there's still some old school techniques out there right the press releases trying to get traditional reviews newspaper magazine that kind of thing um, it seems like today it's the the book blogger and the book bookstagrammer and the the booktube crowd is is where you get all the attention um but you know what were some of the challenges you had when it came to marketing your uh, roxy summers books you know I, that is a really good point to bring up i think one of the biggest challenges for me was i did not have a large social media presence i had been writing a blog for about five years prior to writing my book and that is what helped me become a more value or I, I would say a more prospective client for them for that uh, publishing company was that I did have a a decently sized blog amount uh, amount of blog followers sorry I have I had to think about the freezing there <laughs> and <laughs> I'm very tired I'm the mom of a two and a half year old and that kid keeps me very busy <laughs> um I, I have a little bit of mom brain right now but um Anyway, uh, parent brain. Um, so at least I had that going for me. Um, it was basically a blog focused on my journey of trying. And then after that point, when I actually started talking with that publishing company, they said, hey, what's your social media presence? How many tweet or Twitter followers do you have? How many Instagram? I'm like, I'm not on Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> they said, Oh, have you created at least a, a Facebook author page? And I said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and he who remembers life. And I. Catherine, fairly, you're, you're cutting out on me a little a bit. Would you mind, uh, oh. would you mind repeating that please? 
my problem was is I did not have a strong social media presence. I did not have Instagram. I did not have Twitter. I did not have a Facebook professional account related to my blog or anything at that time. So not only was I trying to go through the second round of editing, you know, first you do your own personal edit before you submit to the publisher. I was finally starting to start my first couple of steps into that process. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, they're asking me to get put everything out there, everything that I am possibly willing to share with the entire world. And so I joined Instagram and Twitter and had a professional Facebook page at the same time, never having done it before or trying to get followers. A, a few of my blog followers followed me over to Facebook and that kind of spilled into Instagram and Twitter. And the only reason I think my Twitter and Instagram even started gaining followers was because I was posting a lot of pictures of my dog at that time <laughs> and dogs get you a lot of likes, but, um, can't disagree with that. <laughs> and it, it was really intimidating in my personal life. I'm extremely inter introverted. I have difficulty talking to crowds. Um, I've learned how to do public presentations or, or, do interviews like this, uh, although this is only my second interview ever. <laughs> um, I've learned how to do that just over time and years and getting over the anxiety of that. But like then the idea of permanently putting things on the internet that was strictly related to the book and doing everything that you could to get that book marketed, it's it's really intimidating. And And I think the best example I can think of is I went to a writer's convention one year and it was talking about the difference between traditional publishing and indie publishing and to focus mostly on the indie publishing part. They gave the example of when you're marketing a book yourself, you are basically standing on a street corner on top of a box with a megaphone holding up your book, asking people who have spent eight plus hours of every day earned a paycheck that taxes have already been taken out of if you live in the U.S. Um, and you're asking them to part with hours of their life that they've dedicated to earn this paycheck to buy your book. And you're basically telling them while you're standing on this box with your megaphone and holding up your book and showing them the cover, you're going, I want you to pick out of the millions of people who have been published to spend that hard-earned money on me. And although it is a cold reality, that's definitely a tough love piece of advice. It it was intimidating, but it also motivated me to actually follow through with the marketing as uh, to the best of my ability. Um, it's really strange looking back on my youth to now and how the world has changed because of the internet and how we market ourselves and how much visual and words and stimulation is out there because of the internet and it's 24 hours a day every day and it's permanently out there for as long as electricity exists <laughs> and <laughs> you know and and it's it's scary it's really scary to put yourself out there and i would say if you're willing to do the work or if you're willing to learn how to do the work that's great. The other roadblock you'll have to have is getting over yourself. Um, if you're someone who's 
kind of insecure and uh, introverted like myself, it's hard to want to toot your own horn and get your name out there because it's like, then you feel like you're standing in the middle of the field with a spotlight on you and everybody's staring at you with their phones recording you and judging you at the same time. And you have to get over it because you're not going to sell any books if you don't. You know, it's, it's funny because I'm an extrovert and putting yourself out there, uh, even as an extrovert, is a daunting task, especially when you keep getting hit in the nose with a wet newspaper every time you go out there to try to sell books and you kind of get knocked back down again. And I think mm-hmm. it's what I find interesting is <clears throat> between you, me, Mark London Williams, Samantha Hewigen, um, if I pronounced her name correctly, or was it Hewigen? I can't remember. Um, don't want to uh, mispronounce her name. Um, and, and, you know, Marie. And, and some others, we all embraced different marketing techniques. And for me, it's um, it's funny you talk about like somebody on a street corner with a bullhorn. For me, my analogy was used car salesman. So I would sit at a book signing, which I set up uh, at, a, at a Barnes & Noble, and I have people walking by. Now, I can't tell you how few people came because I advertised, Right. It was, if anybody came, it was because I knew them. Uh, I did have a few people who found it on a, a local newspaper event calendar or through some kind of social media post that they did. They came to see me and they wanted to buy my books, but very, very few. So I looked at it this way. I'm a used car salesman and I'm going to talk your ear off until you buy the book. And I used to even tell people I could have you in this book today. And, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it's you're trying to get somebody to part with, you know, how, however much our books sell for, you know, 15, 20 bucks, right? Out of all the millions of books out there, you want somebody to spend their 15 bucks and six to eight hours of reading time on you. Now, let's not even, you know, get into the money part. It's it's a commitment to read a book, right? I yeah, only it's a read, commitment of time of their life. Yeah. I only read about 40, 50 pages an hour if, and that's, that's, that's on a good day. So it takes me, you know, just for a 300 to 350 page novel can take me a week because I usually will read at night before I go to bed. And, uh, you know, to me, that's reading much too slowly, but during COVID I, I, I read over 30 books, um, the first year of the pandemic. So, um, you know, and I was out of work at the time, so you know, plenty of time to read. Um, something you were talking about, um, with regard to your blog that uh, struck a chord with me, um, mm. you said you had a, a good blog following, and that's great, right? We all want people to read our stuff. Did you find that blogging helped you develop your voice as a writer? That's a really good question. I The thing about a blog is if, if you're using it to express a portion of yourself and you're not using it strictly for just sharing recipes or marketing a physical product, because at the time I did not have a physical product to market, um, it was, I was trying to make it, I wanted to write my blog as if I was talking to one of my best friends, but I hadn't seen them in a really long time, maybe a couple of months, and we were reconnecting and just trying to share pieces of my life that I felt comfortable um, sharing online. 
And I just wanted it to seem like you were just talking with your friend over a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage of choice. And I don't know if it actually helped. You know, it it encouraged the publishing company to look at me as someone to put under contract. And I appreciated that. I don't know if the blog actually helped me sell books, but as far as developing my voice, it definitely shaped how to structure. It definitely helped me shape how to structure a large amount of information into a shorter bit, but I also come from a journalism background. And then, you know, if anything, I have to credit Twitter for love it or hate it or both at the same time, which is, how I tend to be. (laughs) Um, Twitter is actually what really helped me as far as writing goes, narrow down the point of what am I trying to get across to the universe in 180 characters or less? Because I joined Twitter later on when they expanded the number of characters. But (laughs) um, the blog helped me structure telling a story into the classic three parts, you know, beginning, middle, uh, end with the denouement or whatever. And that helped me understand how to ex- when to expand on a story and when not to and then twitter i feel like that helped me keep sharp with the marketing side because with marketing they want you to t- like i said before you know they want you to explain your book in five words or less or in a tagline or the dreaded synopsis well you got to have and, the elevator pitch right yeah Exactly. And and I think Twitter helped me as far as writing goes, um, how to shorten that, um, shorten my thoughts into something concise. Gotcha. Because I think I think blogging helped me. Right. When I first started blogging, it was a way to keep accountable with fitness. Right. I had started mm-hmm. this fitness journey and it was a way to keep myself accountable. But within a few years and a few injuries, uh, it became a different kind of outlet. It became a creative outlet. Hmm. And, you know, I've done everything from, you know, 6,000 word treatises on the universal horror monster universe to, you know, 300 word posts about whatever's happening that day. But I've done, you know, everything in between that I think, I think that really helped me um, with sentence structure uh, as you said, right, crafting that beginning, middle, and end. Um, but also, too, you got to promote that. If you want people to read that, you have to be able to promote your blog and get people to read it. I learned, you know, about things like Bitly, link shorteners, and being able to count clicks and, and do all that. And I started learning all that with the blog before I ever thought to get published. So, um, and then the podcast for me, again, is another way to, to express myself. But, you know, I find that... Um, I learn a lot about storytelling by talking to folks like you and, and other published authors and other storytellers. I learn about techniques and I learn about inspiration mm. and, and just kind of what kind of headspace you're in. So Catherine to that, to that end kind of, we all got to start somewhere with this, right? Everybody knows I, I was a fan of, of horror films and, and books from a very, very young age and, and started watching, you know, Dracula movies and reading scary stuff very, very young. Where did the idea for you come from to write a book in the first place, right? We talked a little bit about your inspiration for Roxy Summers and, and having that badass female character, but, but just... In general, why did you decide you wanted to write a book? 
That is a very loaded question because um, the the answer the answer to why did I want to write the character Roxy is very different from the answer that you're looking for. Um, what inspired me to write, um, I don't I don't know what it is. Ever since I was a kid, it's something about reading really struck a chord for me. I was like I said, I'm a I'm much less introverted now. But, you know, that just comes with life experience and things like that. But as a kid, I was extremely introverted without going too far into the details. Um, outside of this podcast, you know, uh, Jerry and I have talked that, you know, I'm I'm an adopted kid from Korea to an American Caucasian family. And unfortunately, the way adoption goes in America for an international kid um, in the 80s, it was basically the policy was assimilation at all costs, right? Mm. So at least that's my opinion of it. Um, and so my parents being um, extremely conservative um, religious people, I was placed in very 99% white, conser very conservative, very religious schools when I was younger. And just me being Asian made me different. Um, the fact that I had to wear glasses because I have really horrible vision <laughs> since the age of five, that it was diagnosed. Um, and glasses in the 80s were no fun for anybody. No, they were not. <laughs> I, I still have permanent index indents in the top of my two cheeks because lenses were so huge and my cheekbones are so high. You know, they, the lens is dug in. I've got just permanent uh, dents there. But um, I was Asian. I My family was not. Um, I wore glasses and it didn't help that my mom put me in like little turtlenecks and pigtails every day. So I, I kind of went to school with a, a very large target on my back to be picked on. Um, I was bullied a lot and my respite for not having a lot of friends or being able to socialize well was escaping in books. And I don't know, it's, it's just, could travel anywhere in the world at any time period. Um, I could read a book that was matching my mood or read a book that was opposite of my mood to help pull me out of that. And it something about getting engrossed in a story. And for me, I'm just as big a fan of movies. I, I don't understand this war of books versus movies. You know, I, I think of them as two very different animals. But anything that helped get my mind out of the real world was... It, it's a cliche, but it, it was really an escape for me and a way that I could be the person that I really wanted to be, but that I wasn't emotionally or physically capable of being in my real world. And then um, when I was younger, I actually won a, a poetry contest when I was five. It was I don't even remember what the business was. My parents were in the market for shopping for a car. They were having an Easter poetry contest and I, I was five years five years old and I won and I won this little stuffed animal sheep that still lives on my shelf his name is sheepy because you know as authors we're really great at coming up with names yep great at words <laughs> so I have little sheepy I still have that one from when I was five and it, it's it storytelling being told a story and telling a story it was also not just entertainment but it was also about connection you know if i if i wasn't if i didn't feel like i was connecting with the real world i could connect with this i could connect with the characters that were on the page and then as i got older um later elementary school i realized that i wanted to be a writer at at the time 
I was trying to decide between orthodontist or writer and my parents, <laughs> I didn't become the orthodontist because oh. uh, I had braces twice and I got really bitter about it. Great choices there, <laughs> orthodontist um, or, or writer. I, I know which way I'd and, go. Not spending my uh, life my, putting my hands in people's mouths. Not happening. <laughs> I'm very glad I didn't go that route. Um, <laughs> but uh, not that there's anything wrong with that profession. I oh, no, no very noble. Dentist, but, but just it yes. just wasn't it wasn't for me. Help people but, with their um, smiles. It's great. Yeah. Just not not for me. <laughs> um, I, unfortunately, my parents were not supportive of that career track. And I actually, despite wanting to be a writer, I suppressed that itch for a really long time. And um, my when I told them I wanted to be a writer when I was a child, their response was, um, enjoy being homeless. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I'd like to keep in mind to the listeners out there, they're saying this to a seven-year-old. So I, <laughs> I grew up in a house where, where creative outlets were not okay. They wanted me to be practical. I think I think my parents were kind of expecting me to be an accountant. And despite the Asian face, I'm not great at math. I'm a big fan of math, and I think it's useful. I personally am just not – my brain is not wired to do that well. <laughs> Catherine, uh, one of the things that I, I know about you is, is that – uh, you are the antithesis of stereotypes and and you rail <laughs> against stereotypes and I, I applaud you for it. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You were talking about assimilation at all costs. I was kind of the other way, right? My mom was Korean. I was adopted. Um, and my dad was, was, was Caucasian and he was in the army and met my mom in Korea. And, um, I was bullied to a degree as well. And I got in plenty of fights because my mom was Korean and, you know, I had to stick up for her and defend her honor mm -hmm. and, and, and that kind of thing. So I, I can definitely commiserate with you on, on some shared experiences here. Um, you know, and uh, this whole thing in the last year or two with, with COVID and, and, you know, the, uh, the violence against Asians and, you know, it's bigotry, it's ignorance, it's that kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things I, I did want to bring up, and I'd be remiss, and I should have done this at the top of the show, is wish you a happy Thanksgiving. So this is Thanksgiving week, and uh, I wanted to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and I'm thankful you've come on the, the program. Earlier today... Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and same to you. I, I, I hope it's you. I hope it's a warm holiday for, for you and your close ones. I appreciate that, and, and same to you. Um, I... You know, we, the world, and we're not going to, we're not going to talk politics. We're going to talk history. Sure. So I promise no politics. And <laughs> actually this season of the Get the Knack podcast, I decided no more politics because it's too stressful and it, it's, uh, ugh. anyway, makes me angry. So one of the things though, you know, obviously for years and years and years, we celebrated Christopher Columbus. We have Columbus Day and all this other stuff. This idiot ne never even got to North America for crying out loud. Uh, and we, and we, we hail this guy as some kind of conquering hero. I did a search today for the truth about Thanksgiving. And what I found was really, really disturbing. And without getting into the whole history of, uh, Europeans coming to the, the, uh, North America and, and what happened to native Americans, what I will say about the whole thing is, and you and I had a recent, uh, uh, text conversation over Facebook messenger about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. is I'm not religious, right? I, I don't even think I believe in God anymore, if if I ever really did. But I celebrate Christmas, and I, and I do it in my family. We do it our own way, 
right? We're into the tree, we're into the decorations, we're into watching the the movies, um, all of that, right? I love the music, I love the atmosphere, and I look at it as a as a winter holiday that you spend with your family and you exchange gifts on Christmas Day. Forget the reason for the season. I think it's just a fun winter holiday. And when you look at Thanksgiving, everything we were taught as children was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm educating myself on, on all of, all of that, this whole thing that the native Americans welcomed the pilgrims and they had this big meal. And that's why we have Thanksgiving. It's all garbage. But, What I will say about it is, and this is where I want your perspective, is just like Christmas, you make Thanksgiving your own. There is nothing wrong with taking that day, that Thursday in November, having a big meal with people you care about and giving thanks for what you have, uh, the people you have in your life and that kind of thing. Yes, we should do that every day of the year, every day of our lives. However, there's nothing wrong with having a big holiday to do that. I just wish more people would become educated on the history of colonialism, expansionism, manifest destiny, and all the rest of it. That's my two cents. I I would say that I agree with you. <laughs> Um, I, I think it, it's, it's really strange. I, I went to not, not to sound like a snob, but I, I went to private school up until university and it's really interesting looking back on it now that I'm approaching close to middle age. Um, I, I look back on my childhood and I, I look at how the world is now just the availability of information, the ability to learn history from different perspectives, not just one. And I feel like my childhood was quite a disservice to me. Um, It it was really difficult. It's hard to explain that feeling when you're a child and you don't have the right words because you haven't been exposed to those words before to explain that feeling of one being completely different from everybody around you um, in a very visible, highly visible way. And then not only the anxiety that comes with that, but the staff and the faculty and everyone around you is all the same group and you're not a part of that. And um, on top of that, the layer of school that I, the schools that I went to, added a religious component to a very strong religious component to it. Um, That ties into how they teach history as well. And I look back on it and I'm going, even just this last, these last couple of years, looking back on it, I'm going, wow, I remember only learning about European or Caucasian American people in history class and really nothing else. I learned the civil war, about the civil war, you know, uh, uh, in high school, middle school, high school, and, and the things that came with that. But it was through a particular lens that never, I, I looked at it as like, we were looking at it through a very narrow telescope and they didn't allow us to look at the other telescopes of the same event. <laughs> and it's really interesting. I, I regret that I didn't think to do this sooner because the way I was raised, it just wasn't something that, was in my world to even think about it was to go back and look at these historic events through other lenses, through other people's perspectives. And I think 
it, it's it was a choice and i i'm trying to rectify that now um but it was a choice by my family to have me taught that information and it was a choice by the schools to have me taught that information versus many different viewpoints of history from all around the world um but i do agree with the idea of the kind of taking a moment and people i lost versus, you again say that again oh um i do agree with you that i like the idea of these holidays um being based around taking a day for for one day or a couple days out of the year we the entire country takes time to focus on other people and the people in your life, the people not in your life, um, the people who were in your life but are no longer with us. Um, I don't think anything wrong with celebrating the spirit of gratefulness for the joy in your life, whatever that is, um, or whatever amount that is. I don't think it's a time of year to compare joys to each other, but I, I don't, I like the idea of the holidays being a time that you spend focusing on your loved ones and it's kind of a it's a warm feeling that other people are doing that too because i feel like in a in a time i i don't want to get too far into this either but just in a time that sometimes seems cold it's really nice to know that there are moments that make people slow down and really think about what's in their life what's led up to their life what they hope for the future and finding ways to share that with each other in positive ways. Um, not going too far down that road. I, despite all of the things um, regarding my childhood, I, I am still a religious person, but um, I would say it's at a very controversial, controversial to more traditionalist, but I am very much more of a progressive religious person. Um, so I do still celebrate Christmas. Um my, I literally am staring at my tree <laughs> in our living room. That's uh, we have a fake tree because I have really bad allergies. I'm not going to go into that too much, but um, <laughs> so sorry, people. I don't have a real tree, but no. on the plus side, it already comes with light, so that's half the job done. <laughs> but you got it up already. It's not even Thanksgiving Day yet, and you get your tree. Yeah, up. it's it's in our living room. We're waiting <sighs> to set it up. Um, you oh, know, it's not it's not I, decorated yet. Okay, I'll I'll give you that. It's it's not even set up. It's still All in right. the box. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, I'll, and, I'll let and, you slide. And and also uh Christmas is a really odd holiday for me um because it's actually uh my mother's birthday. <laughs> mm. So I grew up with Christmas being half a birthday celebration and it took me much uh far too long and and much longer than I care to admit to realize that when I talked about the holiday with other people, that it was not normal to have birthday cake at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my father's birthday is a day after Christmas. That poor guy never even got a card, let alone a present on, on the day oh. after. So, you know, I felt, felt awful. No. So it's, it's really funny because there's so much of, of, you know, your life experiences kind of parallel my own. I find it really interesting. Um, one of the things that we talked about, in that recent chat as we were we were talking about you coming on the show was 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 the essence of family right i have this this blog post in my head and i've been gathering material because i don't want to just shoot from the hip on this one um i like to do when i do my longer form 
I like to do a lot of research and I like to understand before I go, go writing it. And we were talking about this concept of, of visiting, right? We were talking about family and, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was talking to a younger cousin of mine who is allowing me to quote her in, in the blog post, but we won't get into to who she is just yet. Uh, 22, 23 years old. She's an outlier. She's somebody who regularly wanted to visit her grandparents and, and did so until her grandfather recently passed away, but she still visits her grandmother. Um, and, you know, but this, this idea of us of a certain generation, you know, Gen X, I think, were the last ones as children who were forced to go to grandparents, aunts and uncles, and, and go see all these folks on a semi to regular basis. And half the time you didn't know how you were related to these people. And sometimes the visits were pleasant and sometimes they weren't. And again, with holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas, how many of us were forced to go to uh, a house to visit relatives that you didn't really care for? Now, that wasn't my experience. I, I enjoyed the holidays with my, my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And, you know, but I do know, you know, there's a word that, that keeps cropping up and that's toxicity, right? You have, you, you go to the relative's house and there's an argument or, um, you know, some uh, resentment comes up and then somebody ends up, you know, sitting outside smoking cigarettes in 30 degree weather, pissed off at everybody. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, so um, it, it just, the definition of family has changed so much in the last 30 years. Right. And I think more and more young people are choosing who they want to spend time with and choosing who they consider quote unquote family than rather than them being forced to have relationships with people they really don't care for. I would definitely agree with that. There's uh, I'm, I would say that I'm probably in, I, I don't know if I'm, I don't remember which generation I'm in. It's either X or Y, something like that. Um, and I struggle with this because I remember my previous years. It was always about family. Even if you only saw them those two holidays a year. And that's the only time that you ever spoke to them. Uh, when my grandmother was alive, uh, my maternal grandmother was alive. We would pile all up in the car and schlep on down to Oregon um, and do it all in a day. And it's it's it was this really big production that you're driving in in really bad weather because we're in the Pacific. I'm I live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, As do I now. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. Welcome to the PNW. <laughs> I'm over here in Ocean Shores. I'm in I'm in the the. Get the Neck Podcast Studio in Ocean Shores over here on the extreme oh. west coast in the middle of the state. Yes. Right on. <laughs> yeah. I love Ocean Shores. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, we I've uh, we, we moved here in June. Oh, man. Welcome. I've been there. I think I've been there once, but it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful there. I would love to go back again. My my spouse, he um, – I'm getting off topic real quick. But um, my <laughs> husband, he, when his grandparents were alive – not for the holidays, but for two weeks, once a year during summer, his grand, his paternal grandparents um, had a cabin in Ocean Shores. And it was, since we're on this topic, it was tradition that all the extended family on his dad's side of the family would all go to this cabin for two weeks every year. It was one week or two. Um, anyway, uh, and 
they're all over the state, just as my family is all over the state. I live in Washington state and it's huge. And my family spans from all the way up in Bellingham, which is two hours from the Canadian border in case uh, your listeners are not familiar with it, to having a cousin who lives in Spanaway, which is a very, very short distance to the Oregon border. <laughs> and all of us getting together and, and, there was a specialness to all of us getting together, but it more the I I think it was more the spirit of that versus the reality. <laughs> I'm going to agree with I you, actually, Catherine. I really am. Uh, not to not to step on what you were saying. I I'm going to agree with that because I I'm very I'm a very nostalgic person, and you know I grew up in Western New York, and you know we had white Christmases and we had we had all that and no, I have wonderful memories of of Thanksgivings at my aunt and uncle's house and and New Year's at, at another aunt and uncle and you know I didn't know my grandparents and they they passed away before I was born so um you know but I also remember getting in the car on some random Sunday and going to visit an aunt and uncle I had no idea how I was related to and, you know, now that I'm the keeper of the family tree, I understand now. I'm like, oh, that was my grandfather's brother. Or that was my grandfather's sister or grandmother's sister. I get it now. But at the time, you know, a lot of times you're like, you're hoping they have a kid, you know, your age. And usually they were off doing something else when you came to visit, either on purpose or or just, you know, coincidentally. So mm-hmm. um, I think, like you said, it's the idea of it. It's the, the kind of the the reminiscence, the nostalgia of it, than the, than the reality of it. And I think the reason I mention it is I think this practice is going away or has gone away almost completely with very, very few exceptions. And holidays seem to be the biggest exceptions to that. I don't think, and, and I can't put my finger on why. And I, you know, everybody keeps coming back with Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. And I think sometime in the last 30 years, you know, the youth soccer, youth, youth baseball, youth volleyball, you know, that counterculture or subculture, can't call it counterculture, uh, that subculture <laughs> dominates people's weekends now. And so, sure. right. So, and since a lot of us were made to go do these things, Often as adults, because we're petulant children, even at age 52, um, we, we're not <laughs> doing that anymore. We're not going to do the things we were made to. I didn't get a flu shot for years because the U.S. Navy made me get one every year, the 10 years I was in. And how Oh, you're a squid? Oh, yes, I'm a squid. 10 oh, years. My, yep. my dad was a squid oh, uh, during awesome. the Vietnam War. He served uh, uh, on the USS Enterprise. No people. And this is not a Star Trek reference, though I am pro <laughs> Star Trek. Um, he was on the USS Enterprise during its uh, first. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on the term. Um, it was deployment. Deploy, uh, Cruise wanna, deployment. It, there, the word deployment is in there. I'm, I'm blanking on the term right now, but I, I think it was like a. Some kind of well, anyway, he yeah, my dad was a squid too. <laughs> well, thank Don't him for his service. I was uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm aboard the USS Saratoga. So, oh wow, yes, a little bit of Middle Eastern uh, combat uh, combat zone experience. So I won't say I was ever shot at, but um, but uh, yeah, uh, first uh, first Gulf War, I was I was part of that. So I used to fix F fourteen Tomcats. Um, used to be. Uh, I've been up to Whidbey Island to uh, hang out with uh, P3 Orion sub hunters. Um, what's what's interesting about Washington State and that, that I live here now 
and I'm fond of telling my my son about this. He's uh, 15. Um, that the old photomat booths now are all drive-through espresso stands. Oh wow! In the first place I ever There's saw that, right? The first place I ever saw that was up near Whidbey Island. And uh, they, they gave me a government vehicle to drive around in. And uh, as I was going from base to base, uh, I would go get coffee through one of these these drive through espresso stands that used to be photomat booths where you got your pictures developed. So, yeah, yeah. there you go. Wow. I you know, know, right? It, you know, it's since we're briefly talking about the passage of time, I was my my spouse and I were in the middle of trying to purchase our first home. And one of the properties we were looking at is in the um, Lake Stevens area, which we decided not to go for. But um, as we were driving along, there was a phone booth off the side of the road. And it it's shocked. I was more shocked at how much that shocked me for seeing a phone booth um, less than a month ago. Versus just the fact, uh, just the fact that it existed, and th- and I was more shocked over my shock because growing up they were everywhere. Ubiquitous, <laughs> you know, I, absolutely. I, I was part of the I was part of the world before cell phones were a common thing. Um, and it's so it's really, it just threw me that it was there. I didn't get out of the car to test if it was functioning. I kind of kicked myself that I didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really strange and um but getting back to the and also i really want to connect you when we're offline i i want to have you connect with my husband because he's been a pilot since he was 16 years old of um single engine fixed wing aircraft and he is a huge huge aviation nut like he will definitely want to talk to you. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to um, love to meet him. And since we're, we're somewhat neighbors, we'll have to meet in person. Um, I would love that. Yeah. I, so funny thing is journalism back, background as well. I, I didn't want to fix airplanes anymore. I, I was good at figuring it out. I wasn't good at actually, you know, carrying things. Um, I hated the manual labor part of it. So I ended up in journalism school and I worked for Armed Forces Radio and Television up in Keflavik, Iceland for three years. My last assignment in the Navy, I wrote for Naval Aviation News Magazine. So I think your husband and I'll uh, have a grand old conversation about aviation. Oh, absolutely. He might get a little starstruck talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and uh, yeah, it, but but getting back to the getting back to the visiting thing, it's just. And, and just the transition of time and how different generations just view the world and, and how it operates now. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree that the idea of visiting no longer exists. It's just been reshaped. I, I would I agree think, with that. And you said yeah. that in our chat too. And I think, I think it's more, it might not be as regular as it was when we were kids and it's going to be more, who we want to visit as opposed to who we're made to go visit or who we make our right. children go visit. Right. We have a friend of ours lives, uh, uh, North of, uh, Napa, California. Uh, she's in her eighties now. Um, she'll drink you and me under the table, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, she's originally from England. She's a hoot. We would go visit her. That was, that was kind of our way of going visiting. Right. But it was, there was always a lunch at a trendy spot. There was also, uh, alcohol involved, and then we'd always finish it with uh, with a traditional uh, cup of tea and some ginger snaps because, like I said, she was from England, and you know I like tea made by authentic English people. Um, 
So, uh, so you pour the milk first, huh? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you take milk at all, right? So, right. Um, but uh, and then to come come to find out, you know, ethnicity wise, that I'm English, Irish, and Scottish, and so I have more connection to all that than I ever thought I did, at least in in my DNA, right? So, but no, I think you're right. I think you're right in a lot of ways, and and. When I say that the the practice of visiting has gone away or it's it's died, it, it in the in the sense that I remember, I think I think you're right. It's it's being redefined, and once once we're really behind uh, the COVID pandemic, I think you're right. You're going to see a resurgence of it, but it's going to be redefined and reshaped, and and um, our generation, or at least Gen X and Gen Y, and uh, you know, whatever is before millennials is, is going to redefine it. Um, and, and I think, but I think gone are the days where, where you're forced into these, these familial connections that, that you don't want. I, I agree. And, you know, uh, back, back to what I was saying that, um, I think the, the, like you said, the nostalgia, that, that feeling, that spirit of, of getting together with your family or your, the people in my case, like everybody's a cousin. I don't know how they're related to me. A lot of them are my mom's mom and dad's like first and second cousins. And then there's me. So they're like first, second cousins once or twice removed. I don't know how all that works, but I feel like we're kind of like the Dukes of Hazard. Everybody's a cousin. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, the thing is when I actually think back on what actually took place during those dinners or those visits is that, you know, I'm still, I'm still the, I think I'm the last product of the generation of where children are seen and not heard. Mm. And so, um, the adults would all have their, their thing. We didn't necessarily have our own table. We were, we all sat around the table together, but then once dinner was over, it was adult time. And sometimes that brought positive things. Sometimes. Well, you cut out completely that time. Hello. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? I can now. You cut out completely that time. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, where was I? So I, I, the family was all together at dinner. And then when dinner was over, it was adult time. So my, my two, uh, maternal, uh, the cousins on my one side of the family that we spent time with, um, I'm, I'm the youngest of most of my cousins. I think there's one cousin who's like just a little bit younger than me by like six months or something, but um, these cousins and I, sometimes the adult conversations would be positive and sometimes they would be extremely volatile and, um, very uncomfortable. And I actually remember the way I remember spending holidays was once dinner was over, my cousins and I would go down to the basement of their house and we'd, uh, eat our dessert and watch celebrity death match. It's not a way to, not a bad way to spend a holiday. I I just refreshed a blog post uh, that I wrote a few years ago about my Thanksgiving childhood memories, and you know it was see be in you know you can understand as an only child, but be me being an extrovert, I didn't put up with that whole you know children should be seen and not heard thing. I always inserted myself into those adult conversations, but I do I do recall. The main thing was, especially with certain relatives, it was the same stories over and over and over again. It was the same work stories. It was the same politics. It was the same, 
you know, uh, it was every, you know, social security, this, and, uh, back when we worked here and got our pension from there. And, um, you know, this president's a jackass and this one, the Congress, this, and, you know, it, but it was always the same stuff. It was never and anything always new. the same arguments too. Right. Absolutely. Like some, some of these topics are not always positive ones and they spark just this, and it's the same argument over and over again for the negative moments. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's, I think I, I do agree with you that, that visiting is, is definitely changing. And I, and one thing that we talked about in our uh, Facebook messenger chat uh, uh, prior to this was that I think society, at least American society now with um, inclusivity being such an important thing, for younger generations. Um, I think I'm kind of the last generation that's kind of in between the older generation and the younger generation on, because uh, we're familiar with what we grew up with, which was extremely traditional America versus now, which is focusing on more inclusivity, at least uh, as far as social vocabulary. Um, the, the social norms of being forced uh, uh, to, to visit people that you may not even know how you're related to them, which I completely relate to <laughs> with you on that one. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> it's, it's choosing the people you want to be with and it, it's, it's becoming more okay to do that. It's, it, it's not just the fact that people are doing it. It's more acceptable for people to do that. And it's, it's funny in my last, in, in my first book and my last book of my series, um, there are scenes of people around the dinner table. And it's, it's strange. Um, my spouse and I grew up very, very differently in regards to how you view a meal. I know that's a weird thing to say, but um, how you view a meal. And for, for me, family time, especially around the holidays, was about sitting around the table for like four hours, passing food around, sometimes talking about the same stories, sometimes talking about the new stuff, but mostly the old stories or listening to that or um, – and we would sit there for like four hours having sharing this meal. And it, it's not that we were stuffing our faces the whole time, but you know, just kind of slowly eating our food. When I met my spouse uh, 20 years ago and we first started getting to know each other. And after the first couple of years, when we started actually spending holidays with each other's families, I learned at his house they're much more active than my family is. Everybody's outside, rain or shine, whatever. They're all running around outside because my uh, in-laws have like five acres that you can run around on. And then when dinner's done, everyone runs in, eats as fast as they can for 30 minutes, and then they all run back outside. And for them, that was spending time with each other. But it was tradition for them to play a lot of basketball, toss a football around, things sure. like that. And it was absolute torture for my uh, for my then boyfriend now spouse to come visit my family on the holidays because he was not used to having to sit still for that long mm. um he was used to not having extended family come over or them driving anywhere it was just his immediate family and maybe the maybe the grandparents if they were available um theirs was very um immediate family focused mine was more extended family focused and maybe it's just because of that reason. Maybe they were more active and wanted to play outside because they saw each other every day. And and with my family, it was these are people I saw on the major holidays. I saw them four times a four times a year. I saw them once for my grandmother's birthday when we'd all get together um, down in Oregon. There was Easter. 
uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it was just, it's just the thing that you did. There was no question about it. You either made sure you had the day off or you were young enough where you didn't have a job at that time. But if you were working, you, you were supposed to make sure that you had that day off. And it or was you just showed up as soon way. as you were done working. Right. Yeah. Once I became an adult, that was definitely true because those were my workaholic years. And sometimes I'd have to work on the holidays and then drive down separately. Um, that was my but, cousin, David. He he would have to work on Thanksgiving and he would come and, and you know, he would come when he got there and, and he spent the rest of the afternoon catching up on the food he missed. You know, we, yeah. we, we had similar experience. Um, we would go to my aunt's house, my father's sister's, and like you said, we'd all sit around the table and whatever, how many hours it was, uh, and we would we would eat. Um, mine were a little very, I used the word misogynistic in the blog post about it, and I hate that word in this particular context because it was just a different time, right? The 1970s and early 80s, it was just a different time, but it was very, very traditional um, male-female roles, right? So... Mm -hmm the women in the kitchen making food, getting everything ready and us guys in the other room watching football. And we would all get around the table and eat um, and, and, you know, gather around and, and all that. I don't remember us having a, a kitty table or anything like that, but we would gather around the table and over the years it would change, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives, all of that husbands. Uh, and eventually, you know, kids uh, would come along and um, but it, it seemed like, what was great about it, and this is where the nostalgia and that reminiscence comes in, it was something you could count on every year. It was always, mm -hmm. you know, it was almost like a, like a favorite pair of slippers, it's, right? It's like clockwork. Mm -hmm. it, there's, it's just instinctual. It's not even something you would consider not doing. And we, what we did was we would rotate, right? And like you said, it was like that four holidays a year you'd see these folks. I would see my, my aunt and uncle and my first cousins quite often. We th Those were the ones we'd go visit more more than anybody else. But, you know, Christmas was kind of a thing. We'd go, we'd go there, but after the morning and, and, you know, lunchtime, we'd end up over there. But then Easter would be at my house. And um, so everybody would come uh, for Easter dinner at my house, and my mom would, would do do her thing. Uh, her fried rice was, was famous, world famous. Um, but... Um, but yeah, but we saw a lot of these folks on a, on a little bit more of a regular basis. Uh, for us, the whole outside thing didn't happen because there was usually three feet of snow on the ground. So there was no really getting outside and doing stuff. And so we were all inside and, and talking and eating and uh, that kind of thing. And But uh, it, it's funny that, that you had dinner, uh, dinner scenes in your books because, you know, my dinner scenes in my books are totally different things. Uh, <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you, you know, it's funny. You talk about Roxy Summers trying to figure it all out. And, you know, she's a little clumsy, a little, little awkward here and there. I, I made a vampire who didn't know how to vampire. So, right. <laughs> right? so she's trying to figure it all out. And, yeah, she was a messy eater, too. But um, kind of this all, all comes <laughs> full circle. So, Catherine Bacher, what do you got going on uh, writing-wise these days? What are you up to? What are you going to put out into the world? Okay. This is going to sound terrible to the writing community. There are people who say 
write every single day. And and that's what my blog was for me. It, it helped, one, keep me on a routine and keep my skills sharp. Um, I am just one of those people I have, I'm going to be sharing something very open right now. Um, I have very serious depression and anxiety. And since becoming a parent, that has eaten up all of my time because it takes not only all of my physical energy, but it also takes kind of all of my emotional energy. And so by the end of the day, I'm kind of tapped out. <laughs> um, but as of late, I have been noodling a new idea. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for, I, I love to read and I love to watch all genres of stuff. I love horror. I love mystery. I love romance. I love, um, I, I'm a big action movie fan and, and action adventure stories. I, I mean, Indiana Jones is like my favorite trilogy oh, wow. ah, that battles with, I take that back. Indiana Jones and back to the future kind of battle for me is like my favorite trilogy. All right. Probably. But you're speaking to me um, with Indiana Jones. Yeah. I'm a big fan. <laughs> oh, huge. And I, except, um, we might, I don't know what your opinion on it is, but I kind of pretend the fourth movie didn't I, exist. It, I don't know what but, you're talking about. Okay. That's a, what <laughs> yeah. that never happened. Yeah. Never happened. Um, <laughs> But um, I, I wanted one of the things that um, I really love when people do is when they take an existing story and not to use the word again too frequently, but uh, reshaping it either for a new generation or putting the theme in a past period piece or um, changing the age range of what of what's happening with the major milestones of that story um, and changing the age range of the characters. And one of my favorite romances of all time is um, Sabrina, both the Humphrey Bogart and the Harrison Ford again, um, Harrison right. Ford, Gary Kinnear, uh, Julia Armand version. That's the first one I actually saw. I didn't know that it had been a remake of the Audrey Hepburn um, bogey one. And I, I love that. And I love the scene where, all the assistants are standing on that piece of plastic and bouncing up and down. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's a great black and white film. Um, and I, I kind of want to reshape Sabrina um, for a new generation. And again, I, I don't know why I'm stuck on that new adult age. I think it's the fact that you can kind of get away with more adult situations. And I really like the idea of someone not familiar with adult situations and having to figure it out for the first time, even though they already have enough experience, life experience to at least make choices. And sometimes the choices are not good ones or um, really impulsive ones. And I want to reshape that story um, into something new. I've also been thinking about expanding on one of the characters of the Roxy Summers series, um, her best friend, Tessa, and um, creating, I've had a three book series for her floating around in my brain for a while. Um, and I hope that any existing Roxy Summers fans or hopefully future Roxy Summers fans, when I get the books back on the shelves soon, um, and I use the term soon loosely, there's no specific date on that yet. Um, I hope they're happy to know that I really want to keep expanding on her world. Um, at the time that I was under contract, I was told that was not a good idea. And now that I am more of a free agent at this point, um, I'm not sure if that's the right term. I'm thinking that's, of going indie now. That's very much but, the um, right term. And I would tell you, do whatever the hell you want. 
I I'm in a similar similar boat. My uh, my first one was republished under a, a new publisher, uh, revised edition, and I do right. have a, love both covers. By the way, oh yeah, yeah the the yeah. new the new cover is spectacular. Um, I um, uh, I always liked your covers. Um, what uh, what's interesting is I have a fourth one, and it's a backstory for one of the characters, uh, not. You know, he's one of the main characters in in the trilogy, but kind of, you know, again, in similar uh, to uh, what you're talking about. I don't I don't have th- three for him, but I have one and it's already done. I just need to get to the, the you know, the finish, uh, the finish line with it and get it out there and get it published. And so. Um, so, yeah, you and I are very, very uh, similar situation. Uh, I think I'm going to be able to see Mark London Williams in a few weeks at uh, L.A. Comic Con in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen him in a while. We used to get together in Oakland. Um, so I think, I think, since we're pretty much neighbors, we're gonna have to find a way to, uh, you know, crash lives and uh, and do some visiting, right? And <laughs> uh, and catch up with you and your husband and uh, get to know each other in person. I I think I would really like that. I I would love to talk to you offline about that. That would be really fun. Yeah, I think so. I think it'd be great. Uh, we as just long as want... you don't mind a, a, a very squirrely two and a half year old. Yeah, I get a squirrely fifteen year old, so don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, we were just in Olympia the other weekend, uh, checking that out. I mean, we'd been there before, but uh, you know, had a had a good day. My my uh, my books are on the shelf at Orca Books in uh, in Olympia um, on consignment, and then also in uh, uh, Hoke Williams slash Aberdeen at, at a new bookstore called Harbor Books. So. I'm still trying to get out there, put them out there a little bit. I uh, just had a short story published in Prehistoric Magazine, something I called Subdivision. Um, it's about, uh, about... Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's about suburban life and uh, and a little creature that... Uh, yeah, a little. Uh, a creature that, <laughs> that, that kind of pops up in, in the neighborhood. Um, so I was inspired by walking and running in the neighborhood. And uh, yeah, but... Uh, We'll have to uh, we'll have to figure out uh, how to uh, put a meeting together in person, and uh, who knows? Maybe at some point we'll we'll be we'll be Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter buddies, um, <laughs> right? So uh, no, I think uh, I think what you were talking about earlier, what we you know we're going to expound on uh, you know family is what you make it, right? And, and especially today's day and age, and I think uh, we're all rebelling against. Uh, you know, spending time with people we're forced to spend time with and we're a lot more choosy. But at the same time, it's funny how a lot of this stuff informs our our, our storytelling and our writing as well. Um, you know, kind of the last thing to talk about when it comes to storytelling, a lot of people say, write what you know. And I bristle at this a little bit because a lot of people come back, what, I got to write a memoir? I got to write an autobiography? No, nobody cares. Nobody cares about, right? right? But yeah. What ends up happening is your life experience informs your stories. I always talk about this one character I created in my first book. His name's Steve. He's every every gym bro you ever met in your life. He's all combined into <laughs> one. But, you know, he's, he's that guy at the gym you really love to hate, right? So, you know, and I've known guys like that. I couldn't tell you it was one person. But, you know, I've known people like that. I'm like, you know, I got to I got to put them in in this story. Um, you know, this detective character that I wrote the fourth fourth book about, he's a cross between uh, Brad Pitt in Seven and Columbo. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is quite a combo. 
Right. And I love both characters. I love, I love, you know, yeah, I love the movie seven and I loved Columbo when I was a kid. So seven is a very, if you're, if for folks, if you're able to watch that one and for some of you, for some who are a little more squeamish stomach, that movie, um, (laughs) it is an excellent film, great thriller and really, really so many layers to that film incredible film yeah Love that one yeah great storytelling great filmmaking great acting perfectly cast the the whole thing absolutely absolutely yep well Catherine, i really appreciate you coming on the program i wish you and yours a very very happy thanksgiving and uh you're welcome to come on the show anytime i can't believe you were nervous you've been a wonderful uh conversationalist and guest and i, I really appreciate it Oh, oh, trust me, the the squirrel cage is going crazy inside the brain. It's just, <laughs> um, thank you very much for having me on the show. I, I really appreciate your time and, and for granting me this time to get to know your listeners a little bit, hopefully. And uh, yeah, I would love to come back. Yeah, absolutely. I love talking to great storytellers and I love understanding the process. And, and on top of all that, you know, the world we live in, we have to market our own stuff. We have to put ourselves out there. But, you know, learning more about you and and your life experiences and that kind of thing has been a blast and I've really enjoyed it. So, uh, yes, open invitation to come on anytime. Uh, We'll set it up and we'll figure out how to, how to meet in person. And I love to talk airplanes with your husband. Um, So, Anyway, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast. Thank you very much to my special guest, published author, Catherine Bacher. We will talk to you next time.